You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, a welcome to uh, all of our listeners on The Zeitgeist. I'm uh, really delighted to welcome uh, our very special guest today on the podcast, Ambassador Julianne Smith. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I don't know why you wouldn't, but uh, uh, Julianne Smith is the U.S. permanent representative uh, to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And as ambassador to NATO, she is at the center um, of the U.S. Uh, policy towards security in Europe, and in particular, the response uh, to the Russian war uh, on Ukraine. And uh, I think it's uh, no exaggeration to say this is the gravest threat to European security uh, in many, many decades. And, uh, and so we are really uh, pleased that she's taken a little bit of time to talk with us today. Um, there's so much we could talk about, the financial measures uh, that the West has taken, the investigations of war crimes, of which there's clear and horrifying evidence. But I want to start with the security situation, if we could. Um, we're in a new phase of the war. What is the security situation in Ukraine um, and the balance of power there from, from the information you've, you've got access to? Well, we uh, have found ourselves now entering a different phase of this war inside Ukraine. It started with a Russian expectation that by seizing Kyiv, they would be able to, in essence, take over the entire country. In just a few short weeks, the Russians were met by a pretty harsh reality, and that was their inability to capture Kyiv, but really to have major victories in too many other destinations around Ukraine. And because of that, they've had to completely readjust and shift to a completely different set of aims. It does now appear that their ambitions are shrinking, that they have their sights set on eastern Ukraine, that they are going to reposition their remaining troops and are moving troops into the east while maintaining their focus on the south as well. Although even as it relates to Odessa, they've had to scale back their ambitions there. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians have just shown a remarkable ability to push back on Russian aggression, their ability to use the capabilities they have, their ability to shift their strategies and tactics in real time, their ability to use the billions of dollars of lethal assistance that have been flowing into Ukraine in, in recent weeks and months has also been quite remarkable. And most of all, their fighting spirit and determination and I think is safe to say has been an, an inspiration uh, to all of us. So this has forced the NATO alliance and individual allies to rethink its own strategy. Allies continue individually to send equipment to Ukraine. We were in the early days very focused on things like air defense, but are now thinking about how to help them with ammunition shortages. We've shifted somewhat to coastal defense. We've shifted 
shifted. You've no doubt heard colleagues at the Pentagon and in defense officials in other capitals talk about training. And then there's also been a new shift, and that is to try and move towards some more heavy uh, types of, of equipment. We've seen instances where countries in Eastern Europe are now offering up things like tanks and, and armored vehicles. So we are under the impression that this is going to be a protracted conflict and NATO allies are preparing themselves adequately and um, in response to that reality by reassessing what more we can do in this moment to help the Ukrainian military and the people of Ukraine. Well, I, I think that you, you, you use the word protracted and I wanna zero in on that for a second because what that clearly means is that the, the Ukrainian armed forces have shown their ability to stand up to uh, Russia's invasion. And, uh, but there's, there's, no, there's no quick solution. There's no quick end to this war that we can hope for. Um, well, we can hope for it, but we can't expect it. And so, uh, as you say, this means that the United States and its partners and Ukraine's supporters need to be making plans that will last presumably at least months, um, not only to provide equipment that will be useful in this and future phases of conflict, but to train Ukrainians and how to use it. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a shift from the first days of the war, right? Indeed, yes. We obviously had hopes that some of these efforts at negotiations would lead to real results and some sort of final political settlement here. But the reality is, you know, our impression has been that the Russians are not negotiating in good faith. They're coming in continually with these maximalist positions. Uh, we've seen some more encouraging signs on the Ukrainian side where we believe that they're putting forward real ideas and, and proposals. But at this point, I don't think we collectively, the transatlantic partners or even the Ukrainians themselves have much faith in reaching some sort of negotiated uh, settlement. Therefore, yes, the focus now is in supporting the Ukrainians potentially over months. I, I don't know, perhaps even longer. We don't we don't know. Um, one issue that we're grappling with is the fact that they are essentially trained up on Soviet era equipment. And so one of the debates that's been ongoing across the NATO alliance is how do we help them train now a more modern equipment that would bring them into the 21st century and enable them to use things that they don't necessarily have in hand, but that individual NATO allies could provide to them. And so that is a is a debate and a discussion that is ongoing here in Brussels, but also in individual NATO capitals. Now, in your assessment, um, or the assessment of the United States, perhaps, um, does Ukraine have the capacity to repel um, the offensive that uh, that Russia is now unleashing in the east and into into a degree in the in the south? I think our confidence level in the Ukrainian forces uh, is very high. And again, we've been impressed 
by the last two months by their ability to fight and and prevail and in some cases push back Russian efforts of aggression. And so we hope and assume Ukrainians will prevail in this conflict. Of course, it's hard for us to predict city by city what will happen in each corner of Ukraine, but we are under the impression that the most important thing we can do right now to ensure that they can prevail is to continue to provide all of the assistance that we possibly can in the days and weeks ahead. Use that word prevail a few times in that uh, in those last couple sentences. That is the US goal, is it not that the U that, that that the Ukrainian forces that Ukraine as a state prevails in this conflict? Yes, well ultimately we want Russia to stop this war and Russia has the ability to do that, could do that today. Sadly, we don't have much confidence that that's what Putin will opt to do. And so, yes, then what we want to see happen is we want the Ukrainians to succeed in pushing back on these Russian attacks. Right, right. Um, okay. Now, you know, of course, the you and your mission and the NATO Secretary General have been uh, you know, intimately involved in the diplomatic and security political coordination. Um, just earlier this week, the NATO Secretary General was part of a call with the president. Um, uh, and yesterday, the, the president announced another um, uh, $800 million in U.S. security assistance. I, if I've got this right, it's $3.4 billion since, uh, since late last year. Uh, yes, correct. Yeah. This is an unprecedented um, uh, pace, um, uh, not only of, of uh, the decision making to provide assistance, but the delivery as well, where deliveries are happening within 48 hours in some cases of the announcements. Um, how has this been possible? I, as a former U.S. official, I've never seen things move this quickly, and I'm, I'm fascinated at how this has been possible in this case. Well, thanks for raising that point. I mean, this has been really an incredible tale and story about quick response. And I use that in regards to NATO decision making in addition to the delivery of assistance. I mean, because we had a few months where we were all closely watching the buildup of these 150,000 forces around Ukraine's border, that enabled all of us, the transatlantic partners, to come together and do a remarkable level of planning in terms of if Russia goes into Ukraine, what will we do on day one, day two, week one, month one? And because of all of that planning, NATO was ready. When the call came at three, literally three in the morning, when we heard that they were going in, NATO knew we were calling an emergency NAC. We knew we were going to hold a NATO summit the next day. We knew we would reinforce the eastern flank. We knew individual allies would be providing assistance. And that level of effort in terms of planning really has paid dividends because we were able to take the political decisions needed to then move out on a whole array of decisions that needed to be taken to get us to the point where we were essentially flowing assistance into Ukraine in real time. And that hasn't stopped. Ever since February 24th, individual allies have continued to flow assistance in, not just 
lethal assistance, but non-lethal security assistance, things like armor, uh, night vision goggles, you name it, helmets and the rest, but also humanitarian assistance. We've seen economic assistance flowing with great speed. So again, the, the work that went into this in terms of anticipating that this could in fact be a reality was so important in leading to those quick responses. And uh, also as a former USG, a US government official, I'll say I've been a bit surprised and, and impressed by the way in which the transatlantic partners have come together in this in this moment. Okay, um, I wanna come back to the, the equipment that the United States and allies are providing. Um, is there anything that's off limits that NATO has NATO, you know, in its deliberation said, we'll do X, Y, and Z for Ukraine, but we're not going to do A, B, and C. Is there anything off limits? Well, look, this is, it's it's interesting because I think people frame this as NATO. NATO per se really isn't providing the assistance. What's happening is individual NATO allies are taking sovereign decisions to provide assistance. Obviously, we talk here about it and we share information uh, when needed, but this is a sovereign decision. Uh, when Poland decided that it, it wanted to send heavier equipment, it had the opportunity to do that. When the U.S. just announced this uh, additional 800 million in assistance, you saw some very interesting and new items added to the list. Um, some drones that we hadn't talked about before, the howitzers um, that had been added to the list. So we are seeing a situation where each individual ally that's making that contribution can make the assessment for itself about what it wants to be providing in this moment. And we believe now is the time to think about more modern systems and training the Ukrainians up on these systems so that they can be even better equipped to deal with the challenges to come. Okay. Uh, I would also add, point out uh, armored personnel carriers are, are, are on that U.S. list. Um, yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, so clearly heavy weaponry, um, not, uh, not out yes. of uh, and. Um, let me also touch on the escalation uh, question. You know, the, the, there is, um, there are, of course, fears um, that permeate the public discussion uh, uh, surrounding the reaction to this war, um, and the the Russian president, indeed, also his foreign minister, as well as a parade of pundits on Russian television, um, state-sponsored media, they regularly insinuate. Um, that there are risks, including as uh, you know, up to the level of of Russia using nuclear weapons um, that could come in response to the Western support for uh, for Ukraine. Um, how sh how should people um, assess and understand these uh, these threats? Is this is this something to take seriously? Is this something that should um, inhibit the United States and its partners from providing assistance to Ukraine? Well, a couple of things on that. First of all, we pay very close attention to what Moscow is saying and when it threatens uh, the use of either nuclear weapons or chemical weapons or accuses us of preparing to use those types of weapons, that can sometimes signal that they are in fact considering using those weapons. So 
we are monitoring those statements and we find them to be obviously very worrisome. We're doing some contingency planning, looking at different scenarios. Again, back to the point about planning, we're trying to think about what decisions might we all collectively have to take if it reaches that point. So that's that's part one and and that's why we we carefully monitor what what Putin is saying at all times. Secondly, I would say you've heard President Biden talk about this. I mean, he's been very clear from the beginning that the United States would not be sending U.S. troops into Ukraine uh, and that the United States would not be pursuing uh, some sort of no-fly zone over Ukraine. I think he and other officials have talked about the importance of not making NATO a party to this conflict. We are looking to stop this conflict. We are not looking to expand it, obviously. All that said, there's a lot that the United States can do and NATO allies can also do to continue to support Ukraine's right to self-defense and its efforts to protect its its territorial integrity and its its sovereignty from these aggressive uh, attacks stemming from Russia. And so we believe that the right thing right now to be doing, again, back to one of my prior points, is to continue to work on providing assistance, continue to apply maximum pressure on Moscow. And then for us here at NATO to ensure that our members on the eastern flank have what they need so that their security is addressed. So we've done a lot of work here at NATO to reinforce the eastern flank. We've moved a tremendous amount of force posture into Eastern Europe for that very reason. And we'll continue to look at options to do that going forward. So it's been a three-pronged effort, I guess, I, as I would describe it. But the president has been clear that we will not be directly involved in this conflict with U.S. troops. Understood, understood. Well, um, uh, Madam Ambassador, you've been extremely generous with your time and uh, you've got a lot of other things to do. So I want to thank you for sharing your insights, um, uh, it, it, in particular at such a grave time for uh, transatlantic security. And uh, we really appreciate it and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, thanks so much. We've he heard today about Russia's shrinking ambitions uh, in perhaps the immediate military goals of Ukraine, the, uh, the united Western response in particular uh, among NATO allies, uh, and, uh, and about the, uh, the ultimate uh, uh, objective uh, that Ukraine succeeds um, in repelling uh, this, uh, this Russian uh, invasion. So thanks so much for being with us and we welcome uh, everyone back to us, uh, back here with us for the next edition of The Zeitgeist. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate the invitation. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.